that was the problem I had when doing the press because like I would walk into a radio station and you know I'd hear the presenter finishing off doing the weather in kind of a perky voice and then they'd go my next guest is Jenny Valentish and I'd be thinking oh fuck off Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My guest this week is Jenny Valentish, who had an addiction memoir not long ago called A Woman of Substance. How do you go wrong with that title? And she has a new book out called Everything Harder Than Everyone Else. And in some ways there's some connective tissue to the memoir and it is looking often at just people driven by extremity and how addiction can jump from one area of their lives to another, to extreme endurance athletes, wrestlers, combat, porn, lots of interesting stuff. Um, Her work has been compared frequently to Louis Theroux and John Runson, two guests that we've had on the show, if you wanna go back and listen to those episodes. But she has a real knack at identifying optimal, to use Lawrence Wright's term, donkeys, which is not a pejorative. It's a term meaning if you have a kind of impenetrable subject, uh, finding the right character who readers can identify with and carry information into that subject for readers. And they, she has just an incredible ability to do that, um, not just with the domains that we're entering, but it's a real credit to her instincts and insights and reporting. And she's a great character to throw into this stuff. So she was really charming and and fun to talk with. And coming up, we're gonna have Michael Lewis. We're gonna have Mark Blythe, who's an economist from Brown University and uh, to complete the Anthony Bourdain obsession of mine, probably you are less interested in this at this point because I think I've kind of uh, gone to the well many times, is Laurie Woolover who wrote the, curated the definitive oral history of Bourdain. And I'm gonna talk with her next week, but I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you will enjoy it also. So please enjoy in the meantime, Jenny Valentish, this week's guest on Tourist Information. I mean, I thought kind of a fun place to start is how often your work gets compared to Anthony, not Anthony Bourdain, to Louis Theroux. It seemed like a common trope in a lot of it. I just wondered, is that something that you've consciously tried to cultivate? Is it annoying? (laughs) It's no, no, no. I've definitely not tried to cultivate it, but I do really like his work. And I do love the work of John Ronson, who it's probably closer to, really. Um, I just love immersion journalism and really that dates back to the really obvious thing of reading Hell's Angels by Hunter S. Thompson when I was a teenager and then all that kind of new journalism um, and then just getting into at the time when I was a teenager as well the music press the enemy and the melody maker and sounds that was all very much the journalists writing themselves into the copy mm-hmm. so that was a huge influence as well. Um, so I guess that's the kind of gonzo end of it. But as you get a bit older and more mature, you're just making yourself the lens through which the reader is, you know, meeting these people and you're very present in the story. Mm. Yeah, I've had both of those those two people you mentioned. I've had Louis on and I had John Runson on a few months ago. And it was interesting because I found Runson was very reflective. But I find Louis, I don't know if you read his book. Yeah, I did. It was arrogant. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. and and it's really, it's really interesting, this discrepancy between his mandate with his shows that I think makes them so compelling is to always look for conflict. And in his own life, he's so unbelievably passive. Mm. Well, what I remember from the book, actually, was the kind of... um, God, I'm really being opinionated here, but I, I felt it was he was quite selfish towards his his wife quite a lot, and I found myself siding with her. But also, he mentions the fact that, and I took heart 
after this, uh, he mentioned the fact that quite a lot of the talent he's worked with over the years really uh, actively disliked him and would complain about him, you know, to whoever the production company was and that kind of thing. Um, and when I read that, I was actually uh, kind of locked into a battle with one of my interviewees. <laughs> so I thought, oh, that's, I've just heard that exactly the right time. <laughs> that's interesting, because, yeah, I, I mean, I found as he kept bringing up Jimmy Savile, which mm. takes up the bulk of the book more than anybody else, that a lot of his observations about Sa Savile's compartmentalizing like how he could be nice and friendly i thought you're really talking about yourself like a lot of this would directly apply to you it, not you jenny but you louie in the sense of um i don't know who you are you're always a cipher in your work yeah even though i i do like where he gets to like, like i find there's this and i think you have this as well there's an element of kind of clickbait in I need to see what's going to happen with Jenny in this situation and then you also find depth and pathos in who you're interacting with and that combination is is pretty hard to get at I wonder like how long did it take you to kind of develop this ability to take a concept that is so rich and I immediately need to engage with it and then you find all these new things in it yeah, well, I mean, it's just a desire to look for patterns, really, and make sense of whatever it is I'm interested in and try and get a grasp on it. Like, to me, being a journalist is being a bit of a control freak and trying mm. to control and make sense of the environment around you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, each book, I've done four now. Well, the first one was an anthology, so, and the second one was a novel, so perhaps they don't count as much, but the two non-fiction books were all about some topic that I was completely intrigued by that I need to go deep in. And it's a bit like method acting for me, really. Like, I, I'd get some... Um, it starts to absorb me completely and take over my sort of identity somewhat. Mm -hmm. So with this book, I even noticed, like, the little back cover blurb about me afterwards when I got it back from the printer, I thought... God, that's dripping with bravado. You know, that's really quite embarrassing. Like it's all about, you know, chasing the void and being in the ring and all this kind of stuff. But it was in the total character of the people that I profiled in the book. And I had just kind of absorbed it for that whole period of time. And I loved it, I have to say. I mm. loved being able to do that. It's a bit of a hall pass being a journalist to me. Like you get to... Um, do things and try things that perhaps you wouldn't attempt otherwise. Like, for instance, you know, I had a, an amateur Muay Thai fight by the end of the book. And, yeah, I was already training and I loved training. But the fact that I was going to write about it meant that I had I was more brave than I might have been in terms of actually getting in the ring in front of a big crowd. Because mm. even if it went tits up brilliant that's some material isn't it so you've got some kind of safety net when you when you act as a as, as a journalist who's into that world of immersion for you is it true what Nora Ephron said that if something harms you in real life you're the victim of it but if you tell that incident and you get a laugh from it you kind of it's empowering in some Absolutely. respect yeah I feel it almost Again, it's that control thing, isn't it? If I write about something traumatic or humiliating, then I am now the architect of it. Um, I've taken the reins and this is my account of it. And it would be a truthful account, but of course, truth's got many facets, isn't it? Sure. Do you feel with, with, with that control aspect of this, when somebody profiles you, interviews you, is it disconcerting to give up some of that power? Yeah, really is. I mean, this book's not so bad because it's a fun book full of interesting characters. But the previous book was an addiction memoir of sorts where I use myself as the case study to kind of look at different aspects of addiction, like comorbidity with eating disorders and mental health and trauma and all these kind of things. And so I had to give a lot of myself. I'd never been an opinion writer. I'd never written um, about my own feelings before I've, I shied away from that kind of thing. So this was kind of the hill I was going to die on. Um, but it's one thing to do that within the context of a whole book. But then when you then go into a radio studio, for instance, where maybe you've got six minutes 
and they immediately start asking you about trauma or or like the worst point of your life and introduce you essentially as a victim then you've got no control over that situation you know it meant for instance if I've been introduced as a victim I can't then also be the authority and talk about all the research I did in the book you can't be both (laughs) not in the media especially not on radio so I, I found the whole media process and in Australia the media went on for about four months um really really sort of stressful like I broke out in hives on my face it was a situation I couldn't control at all even if I tried really hard like for instance you know the press material and the blurb on the book hardly mentioned my personal story because I was trying to guide people into talking about the topics and the research and of course before I went on to any radio show I'd brief the producer give them bullet points of things they might want to talk about and you know I didn't do that with you for instance because I feel much more comfortable with this book and it's I'm just you know an observer who's quite visible rather than it being about me right right that's interesting well one of the things in researching you that I thought was interesting we we almost exactly line up on this is that your first book didn't come out until you were 34 and you had been trying you said with various aborted manuscripts for 12 years to get published. And I just wondered, like, uh, sometimes I have this counterfactual in my mind that the first book that I finished when I was 20, had that gone somewhere, where would I feel in publishing now? And I wonder for you both, where did you want to go with publishing at the outset when you began at 22 years old? And what was it like to arrive where you did at 34 with your first book? Wait, I'll answer that. But so what would it have been like for you then if that book had been published when you were 20 or so? I would have been really fucked up because <laughs> because I kind of imagine I think sort of in that like Andy Warhol way with the factory, like those people we're, we've not made it in. We're, we're totally dysfunctional. All these other areas. Suddenly this guy is going to turn us into a superstar and things things are going to work out. And I assume getting a book published like you're home free. And it is completely not that like Mm. I in my own limited way, every time I've had something happen where people have told me, get ready, your life is never going to be the same. The New York Times is going to profile you. It's never going to be the same. It's completely the same. (laughs) (laughs) like not much really changes other than maybe you get a little more access to people you want to talk to which is wonderful but beyond that I don't know that much has changed yeah I agree I think um so the book I was writing when I was sort of 20 to 23 um basically was fiction in inverted commas so actually it wound up almost being source material for Women of Substances, which was my addiction memoir all those years later, like 12 years later. Um, Because it was about a woman, a young woman rather like myself, who was living in the underbelly of life and um, hanging out with nefarious characters. But of course it would have been terrible because um, one, I hadn't learned my craft at all, Um, but also I was very much embroiled in my own drama so you can't structure a good book when you're in the thick of something what's that old adage it's like right from the the scar not the wound isn't it Mm. so even though it was a a novel it would have been a complete mess but I was actually working for a crime fiction publisher at the time and he was like just knock a book out and I'll publish it for you it'll be your first book and I think there was a bit of a fear of that old fear of success like what if I did do that you know my huge dream of publishing a book and so eventually when I had the first one come out at 34 I remember um it was an anthology that was co-edited with my friends and there was a bit of a bidding war for it a modest bidding war but all the same like four big publishers and when we finally signed the contracts I remember we were both on such a massive come down having done that that we'd flown to Sydney together and we were on a high we're going to sign this deal the moment we did it and walked out of the office uh, she and I just decided to go our separate ways because we needed to be alone and it was this realization of the dream you know it was this uh, what have you got now this massive goal and you know 
for goal in life now that you've achieved that which is quite funny because the final chapter of my current book everything harder than everyone else looks at the you know the paradox of being very goal driven and yet whenever you achieve a goal you're kind of devastated or in limbo and maybe even have a sort of identity loss you've immediately got to generate a new goal uh, which of course applies to athletes a lot um which the, the book profiles but it, it applies to us all and it's something that I struggle with because I am very goal driven and as soon as I achieve something I've completely hooked myself to it mm. and now I'm adrift it's it's weird that there seems to be this misapprehension for a lot of people with dopamine delivery that it's about getting to the destination as as opposed to the pursuit yeah and almost immediately after you do get to the destination you go into dopamine deprivation or I'm not phrasing it right dopamine like having a a lower level of dopamine than when you started so yeah. it, it starts this chasing your own tail all over again not only that but studies have found that gamblers actually get a bigger dopamine hit if they get a near miss because huh. <laughs> it's that you know the winding up of anticipation and yeah, it's it's not about the acquisition at all. It's about the anticipation. Well, it's also funny. I was seeing, listening to a woman, uh, a doctor, talk about that we get more dopamine not watching our team score the goal or anything else by extension that's like that, mm. but watching the people we dislike lose. Like the team we don't like missing a goal so they lose the game gives us much more dopamine than us succeeding. Yes, I can picture that. Um, so, yeah, the, the final chapter of the current book is all about goals and how to get over that kind of, um, you know, pitfall. And uh, I talk to sports psychologists and I talk to athletes who've been injured, that kind of thing. Um, and the answer seems to be, well, one of the answers seems to be um, that we need both telic and atelic activities in our lives. This is an ancient um, Greek kind of philosophy that's come back into fashion somewhat. Um, so telic activities uh, comes from the word telos and they're goal oriented. So they have an endpoint. There's disappointment built into them. Whereas atelic activities are things we do purely for enjoyment's sake. There's no fanfare. There's no endpoint. And I looked at my life and I thought, I don't think I've ever had any AT-League activities. Everything's got to be for a reason, you know. Even as a kid, I wouldn't just draw a picture. It had to be a picture for a card to give to that person so they could admire it. So um, I'm, I'm working on it. I am doing some things now purely for enjoyment. But it's, uh, it's completely at odds, perhaps, to the way I'm wired, because I, I do believe I'm probably quite dopamine deficient hence my past of addiction and my need to constantly have missions do you do you see writing as another form of addiction for you i don't know if it's an addiction it's just uh the way i communicate with the world i'm not very verbal um i've really had to work on you know doing things like interviews and public speaking very hard over the years uh and small talk I <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I was curious too. I mean, you mentioned sort of fictionalizing um, yourself in in some respects with the book, dealing with stuff. What was it like then to go into creating the nonfiction character of you? And and how much distance do you see between who you put into the memoir with how you see yourself off the page? Well. I mean, with memoir, you really have to cherry pick, don't you? You have to tell a specific, you have to pull out a certain thread from your life and discard the other threads. And you're not really declaring that, but of course you have to, otherwise the book would be endless. So um, it meant that I was looking at the Jenny, mainly of the 90s and early 2000s, who was very self-destructive and... Um, quite manipulative um i had to sort of imbue that with some humor so that you would actually like me and want to come along on the ride um which is, isn't too hard because you know addiction there's a lot of black humor around addiction and people who've experienced it tend to be good at it um but you know it, it meant there were aspects of my personality that i had to discard in order to tell the story and certainly um 
I teach men right now and, and you know, I, I put the point across that you, you don't have to disclose everything. Like, for instance, you get rid of the bit characters. Anyone who doesn't move the story along, even if they were in your life significantly, they don't have to go in, that kind of thing. I didn't do anything like, I didn't do things like collapse scenes or, you know, there was nothing fictionalised in it at all. It's just a question of, you only put in what you need to make your points. It is weird, though. I mean, as I say, we're about the same age when we did our first book, both. Well, mine was a memoir at 34, but I was writing about when I was 20 to 30. And I was aware that like who how I saw the world, the, the tenor of the relationships I had with people, friends or women was totally different than where I was at writing it. And so it felt very fundamentally dishonest to try to inhabit a character and inhabit a world with that perspective when all of it had really dramatically changed. Mm. Is there some aspect of that for you also? Hugely. That was the problem I had when doing the press because like, I would walk into a radio station and you know, I'd hear the presenter finishing off doing the weather in kind of a perky voice. And then they'd go, my next guest is Jenny Valentish. I'd be thinking, oh, fuck off. Um, because they just wanted me to be in this pit of despair, you know. And I, yeah. I, I was writing about a period, as I say, that was mainly in the 90s. Um, I was mainly writing about my teens and 20s and a bit of early 30s. But the book came out in my early 40s. So I'd moved on. Right, right. And I get that you have to talk about what you've written about, but I, I wasn't that person and I wasn't that deeply flawed anymore and I wasn't that traumatized. So it was just a dis huge disconnect to have to be spoken to like there's a big problem here. Mm. It was it was not good for the psyche. Don't you find that that's a common thing about when wherever you land after your books come out and you've kind of, whether or not you've crafted a character, it's it's imposed upon you a little bit. It's hard to get out of that box when it's been assigned. Like I notice in my case, male, boxing, Cuba, I must be Ernest Hemingway. I must want a trophy hunt or something <laughs> like it's, I, I cannot write anything that isn't deemed macho, masculine. And I'm like, this is an intrinsically not very masculine pursuit when we think about it. Right. Like it's it, but yet there's just no way to avoid a lot of those things. And and so you just have to be oh, OK, fuck it. Like, I'll just move on. It, is there something if you write an addiction memoir? I mean, I notice like what I, I've mentioned, my dad was an out al is an alcoholic. And he always says to me, all I'll ever be is just the alcoholic dad in, in your work. I'm nothing more. And it's like, well, you're a lot more. But I I. I can see how you would be lumped into that category if an interviewer is asking me about my family yeah. sort of thing. So I wonder, like, what are the pros and cons of where you started with your memoir that got a lot of attention and, and, and that sort of thing? It's funny because, I mean, as journalists, we're part of that machine, aren't we? Like, I profile yes. people all the time. And of course, I'm going to ask them about this part of the book, which is the most shocking or whatever it is. I don't want everyone else to be mentioning it. And then it's like, Oh, well, Jenny is the writer. Can't have read that bit. <laughs> That's missing from her copy. Um, sorry, what was the question at the end bit? Well, just just like the pros and cons of coming out of the gates with a memoir that sort of puts you on the map, like oh, yeah. because I've read like when it becomes a genre, <laughs> like it, like it was at first it was like oh it's so revelatory that there's these addiction memoirs mm -hmm. and then suddenly oh another addiction memoir and I've heard like even. If you're dealing with a, a loved one or a family member dying of cancer, it's a cancer memoir. Like it becomes a soup rather yeah. than a spice. And yeah, it can be a little frustrating, I'd imagine. Yeah, I was really distressed about it. So after the first year after it came out, in the first year, I was still doing lots of talks. People could hear me speak myself rather than how I was being presented in the media, which was tragic. Um, and I was getting so much heartfelt correspondence from people and from academics and researchers in the addiction fields that it kind of tempered the humiliation I was feeling and discomfort of being out there in the press. 
when that wore off, I was left with all these pages of internet results, if you Google my name, which were just like breaking out with tiny violins. And I was like a poster girl for trauma, which was really embarrassing because um, I used myself as a case study because, uh, yes, there was sexual abuse, but all the same, it was not, it was quite a pedestrian tale. And I thought that actually makes me a good case study because I think loads of people will be able to relate to this. Loads of people have experienced it. I was quite textbook in the way my behavior played out. So I was kind of comfortable with using myself. But then once it all was covered in the press, I was kind of like this poster girl for trauma, as I say, as if awful, terrible, terrible things had happened to me that, you know, other people haven't experienced. And that was false. Um, So that was deeply, deeply uncomfortable. So... Uh, in a way, the book that followed it has been kind of the salve because, all right, it does draw on a few themes of the addiction memoir. It looks at things like the fine line between hedonism and endurance, it looks at our need to control our bodies, but it's celebrating these outliers, these other characters, these athletes and people who push their bodies. And I get to be the sort of learned voice, if you like, because we've already established that I understand these kind of impulsive behaviours from a last book. So it's kind of pushed me and my experience into a more positive realm. And with each year that goes past, I comfort myself that there's a bit of distance between me and the addiction memoir. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I was very interested in how you organized these nine chapters, like how you decided on the characters that you pursued, the themes, and the sort of organizing thesis that you settled settled upon. So I wondered like where it began to where it uh, crystallized into these nine chapters that you, mm. you book. It began with Charlie Engel, who's the dream interviewee, really. So he's this ultra runner. He's uh, about 60 now. Um, and he'd written this memoir called The Running Man, found it in my library, local library. And um, it's about how he went from being a crack addict to, you know, this absolute record breaking outlier of an ultra runner. As if ultra running isn't extreme enough without you being at the top of the game. <laughs> um, yeah. And I was really interested because I had noticed that a lot of people who quit drugs hurl themselves into you know, extreme health. I've done it myself. I've gone from like extreme self-destruction to extreme self-preservation. Um, but overall, the the main sport that seems to attract people is running and long distance running. So I was quite interested in that. And um, that became the sort of hypothesis like it's um, what are the reasons that people do flip from one to another. I mean, there's the kind of, you can imagine there's neuroscientific explanations, but is there also sometimes like childhood trauma, be it, be it sort of neglect? That was actually a common one of my interviewees. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, often it was domestic violence, sexual abuse. So these themes that came up in the last book, which were no fun at all in that context, um, actually in this book, it was more a positive presentation of how people have used these things as fuel to become absolutely you know absolute outliers in their field um so I call them the people in my book I call them the natural born leg jigglers because I'd noticed that almost invariably when I was interviewing them their leg would be jiggling away as as is mine now um Uh and uh it's basically it's not pathologizing them at all it's celebrating their capacity to take what life's dealt them and turn that into this kind of superpower and so I had theories to to answer your question about each chapter about what kind of sports or pursuits might attract a certain kind of person so for instance bodybuilding was a key one because bodybuilding you're reinventing yourself literally you know you're rebuilding yourself and sure enough um you know, I've talked to quite a lot of people in that field now, and often there is a history of um, a chaotic childhood. So not really inconsistent parenting, maybe your parents taking drugs or whatever it is. Um, and so later in life, there's this kind of real desire for structure. 
so obviously bodybuilding provides that in spades um and then you know you've got things like martial arts which you only have to look at the kind of the movies and comic books about martial arts and there's the trope of the bullied or put put upon kids finding it as salvation and it's very true and people who take up martial arts and combat sports as adults in particular have invariably got something to prove to themselves so it's such an interesting field to draw so, out these stories well i, I want to go through all of these because i i really like the choices that you made but i wonder if we can just play around a little bit within some of the psychology of these pursuits because in particular like running like there was just the the marathon here in New York and the finish line was about two blocks from where I live in Central Park and I've often wondered because I did a lot of running for boxing where I'd run five miles a morning at four o'clock in the morning that was Mike Tyson's routine so I thought <laughs> you know here's a path here's structure exactly what you're de describing coming out of trauma find structure and safety in somebody else's identity and their routine um, and then one day I noticed there was an advertisement for a marathon in 1994. I was 14 and I just jumped into it and did it. And at that time, it wasn't what it is now globally as this kind of rite of passage for a lot of people. Like marathons have become a thing mm. for people that are not athletes or have no interest particularly in sports. And I, I, I'm curious what you make of that, that it has this big emotional goal feeling like, I mean, New York was shut down for the marathon. I'm like, it's just people for no good reason arbitrarily running 26.2 <laughs> miles across five boroughs. Who gives a shit? And why does this need to be organized? But it's a big deal for people. Uh, so I'd like to talk about that. And the other is, this, in terms of running, what what I experienced in it was the degree of masochism that's involved and denial. Mm in order to prolong suffering it required a, a huge amount of self-deception which i found integral in transporting it over to novel writing like running a marathon when i was totally not ready to run a marathon was the <laughs> best university to write books yeah that's really interesting yeah it's the the first chapter of the book which looks at ultra running and also you know long distance cycling does really focus on the whole suffering aspect because a lot of the race marketing materials for <clears throat> ultra marathon races are you know people sort of looking like they're at death's door running for these really extreme conditions and anyone in their right mind would think i would hate to do that but a certain breed of person is going to be extremely attracted to that and similarly you've got Sufferfest, which is an app like a, a, a cycling racing app so, you know, it's um, this myth mythological kind of landscape where you've got like the lactic, lactic seas of pain and, you know, the, the person who, who, who created it calls himself, um, uh, I think he was a CEO of suffering, I forget, but it's, it's, it's kind of making a mockery of, or, or, you know, putting fun at the fact that there is this cult of suffering around these long distance endurance things. And so that's why I could see these quite natural parallels between people who'd experienced addiction and moving into this pursuit, because um, there's this real kind of bloody minded, grueling, I'm in it for the long haul thing. Like, I mean, if you think about it, addiction, well, we tend to think of the immediate high, but it's a much more long, grueling path than that. You know, like the acquisition of the drug, for instance, could be quite um, a mission. Um, and then I, you know, I certainly used to really push my body deliberately with this kind of bloody minded curiosity, like what would happen if I have this next line of speed at in the morning and I've got to go to work in a few hours what would happen if I drank this tumbler and smoked this deck it was kind of like this desire to see what the body is capable of and I think that crosses over into long distance running where you're absolutely flagellating the body there's a sense of um rumination and it's quite sort of solitary even though you're running in a pack and you might have people that you meet up with at the end of the day it's you in your head with this kind of infernal looping rhythm of your body that you're stuck in um and then of course you've got the 
the runners high. And so I remember Charlie Engel saying to me, you know, people say to him all the time, I hate running. And he said, I actually don't enjoy it as much as you might think. But, you know, there's this payoff. And he said, I enjoy it when you stop. <laughs> and there's this payoff of these kind of um, endorphins and anacannabinoids and all the good stuff. So, um, yes. So I think we're, 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 a, we're sort of living in this society where some people are very determined to get out of the comfort zone because they're living in a world of spreadsheets and, you know, things that are available at the flick of a switch. So that's part of the appeal. But also it's something much deeper, this kind of almost like a self-loathing, I think. Mm. When I remember doing cross-country running and stuff in high school and another pleasure was concealing your own suffering in order to psych out people you're competing against. I like Break that breaking their will and it's the same is true in boxing you have to animals know how to conceal injury yes. it's a huge survival mechanism and you do the same thing in boxing to break people's will because if you have their will it doesn't matter what kind of condition they're in or how strong they are they, they give up they want to go home sort of thing and it's so, interesting because it's not even that competitive long distance running right i mean it's more I don't about, know about that really <laughs> Okay, because I don't do it because I'm I just can't wrap my head around running at all. But I thought it would be I thought it was more about sort of personal bests and pushing yourself. You would disagree think, then? Well, I I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you certainly do want to test yourself, but you run much faster with other people for one thing. Mm. Like, like all the records are broken with other people, and it's there's a there's a great essay in the new yorker it's a terrible book that it got expanded into by david samuels around 2000 about a guy who was a almost world-class level cross-country runner and then he went to university and had to compete this was i think the early 80s or late 70s compete against olympic level african students who went to the school who were 30 years old and he was so angry about it that he pretended to be a high school student and went back to high school to start running again and then ended up sneaking into Princeton by lying about his background and <laughs> continued to keep running. And while at Princeton, he was a complete straight A student legitimately. But it's back to that sort of deception, concealment thing that the yeah. running to inform this con man that he was in all these other areas yet he was clearly he was he was on his way to being a road scholar totally legitimately <laughs> this is not something that came up in my research so i'm fascinated yeah the idea of i mean i used to work with kangaroos so um yeah. i used to see um yeah when when they're injured or frightened or they think you're trying to capture them they'll start casually grazing on the grass as if they've got all the time in the world and they're just having a bit of a nibble so i get what you're saying about the concealments um yeah. I, I, I love that idea his name is james hogue i mean he's probably about 60 years old now but um yeah look, look up the runner in the new york around 2000 yeah it's amazing talking um, of that kind of deception um there was that book by um I think it's Andrew Tillin, The Doper Next Door. Have you read that? No. Um, so he he was a journalist, especially for sports and cycling titles. And he was also an amateur cyclist. And he wanted to interview someone who would admit to doping and he couldn't find anyone. So um, he decided that he would have to be the one to dope. And he was always going to admit it at the end. But he did actually compete in all these um, races and he, he didn't win, but he did pretty well. Um, but yeah, he got, apparently he got kind of smashed when it came out. Like people were sort of giving it one out of five on Amazon and getting mm -hmm. very, very angry and that kind of thing. Which I could relate to because I took um, testosterone for my book, um, oh. for the bodybuilding chapter, because I, I realised... I should have interviewed people who were taking performance enhancing drugs. I've managed to come up with a couple of people who didn't. Uh, what an oversight. I'll take them instead um, and report back. And it, it turns out that, you know, what I could get from an anti-aging doctor is in no way what a bodybuilder would take, which would be black market, much larger quantities. Um, but um, yeah, one of my interviewees was this strength coach who I selected because he writes about um doping and how it's kind of um you know his stance is really 
look, nothing's a level playing field. And, you know, it's people get their knickers in a twist about this to, to an extent. And so I was talking to him about what I'd done. And, um, yeah, he kind of, we, he took, we took a dislike to each other in the interview. And he wound up getting really annoyed and um, sort of talking about the documentary Icarus as if I'd as if I'd recruited him like to help me game the system and you know become a really dangerous Muay Thai fighter even though I was only on like this practically homeopathic dose of testosterone that old ladies rub into their skin Um, and he made all these Facebook posts about me like implying that I was heavily juiced up and reported me to ASADA which is our version of you, you Sada, is that how you yeah. pronounce it there? <laughs> yeah, so um, that was my uh, Andrew Tillin moment, similar to the Dopa Next Door, where I realised, okay, not everyone appreciates it when you you um, wave your immersion journalist hall pass. No, and you're right. Certain things. You're you're definitely right. I mean, it's funny. I I had I wrote an article, and Lance Armstrong reached out to ghostwrite for him, and so we had a few interviews. And one of the things I found really intriguing about how he processes what he did, and I mean, still he's sitting on like $100 million. So the the, the moral hazard was zero in terms <laughs> of what he really paid for it, aside from the humiliation. But anyway, is when it was put to him, if you could have secretly had a motor in your bike instead of taking all of these drugs, like what's the difference? Like ultimately, if you're taking the best EPO and testosterone, growth hormone, all the stuff that you were taking and you have the best doctor in the world issuing it, you have the cancer shield so that nobody can really challenge you, well, what would be the difference of just having a motor and winning everything and breaking all the records? To him, it was totally different. But I'm not sure how it's different. He didn't, he's not, he wasn't really that able to articulate the difference, but for him, it was night and day difference well i suppose he would see perhaps one as enhancement of his natural goods <laughs> and the other so, is a complete cheat <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's just it's like i know in in women's sprinting because i think women have 10 percent of the testosterone of men you can clearly see just the chemical barrier of it's just much easier to catch women cheating than men with testosterone mm. given given the proportions and so um, Flojo, all of her records, women haven't come anywhere close to any of her records. Mm. And yet men keep breaking them with cons- at considerable margins. And it totally points to that it's cheating. I don't know. I, I, I wonder how you would sit with that being an achievement when it's just drugs. Personally, um, I, I wouldn't see it as an achievement at all. So I, I wasn't taking the testosterone to improve my Muay Thai prowess like I didn't have my first fight for eight months after I had taken my last dose um I was doing it to see what would happen and so I could write about it and I just hadn't thought it through very well because if I'd researched it better I'd have realized well nothing of any note is going to (laughs) happen because it's such a low dose but yeah I, I personally feel that if you're doing something it depends on the sport if it's bodybuilding sure it's an open book you know people know that they can take one look at you and they know that you're competing in a you know not as a natural competitor um but if it's something like any other sport where you're competing against each other especially you know something where you could hurt the other person then i think it's bullshit (laughs) and yet there doesn't seem to be any again any moral hazard for there's been many boxers who've admitted at the end of their careers, they were cheating throughout. Mm. Didn't have to give back any of their money. You don't. Right. All well, Evander Holyfield was caught with. You know, Evan Fields was making huge requests for growth hormone and that kind of thing. Um, even in baseball, I mean, if you're Mark McGuire or Barry Bonds, two of the biggest drug cheats in the mm. sport, um, it's not like they have to give back any of their money. Mm. Uh, it, it's not as if we know whose job they took as a result of their enhanced ability. Um, I mean, like in the Tour de France, for example, I think it's about 2% from the the person who finishes first and the person who finishes last 
and they say EPO gives you a 10% increase in performance. That is overwhelmingly dramatic. Do you think the reason that there hasn't been this pushback is because it's accepted that actually it's way more prevalent than... 100%. I mean, these these people where they've been busted or admitted it are just the tip of the iceberg. So the playing field almost is level. (laughs) Well, I mean, again, we'd have to parse that a little more because if you're Lance Armstrong and you have the cancer shield, then people cannot investigate you the same way they could a bottom level person who doesn't have the resources to get the good doctors and the good product and to shield it. So mm-hmm. it's a little different, but I just mean the incentivization of if you're going to get into the hall of fame as a result of doping for five or six years, yeah. or if you don't dope, you can't participate in the sport. I, I don't think that's a difficult choice for many people, especially from the circumstances in which many athletes emerge about whether or not to do it. I'd love to know all the different, you know, the, the different sort of stories people tell themselves. I mean, I, I even considered the follow-up book could be on performance-enhancing drugs because it's such a fascinating field. You know, I've talked to pharmacists over here and doctors about it. I just don't know if I'd have a big enough audience. But, um, uh, yeah, I'd love to know what the rationale is that people tell themselves. I'm sure there's all different narratives, you know. Well, and, well you um, t- one of, one of the chapters you had was on wrestling and, and you referenced. And that's Chris, totally sorry, different. I'm sorry. Uh, it's, it's totally different to me. Like that's like bodybuilding where right. you're not actually competing for stars choreographed. So where's the harm? Like you're, you're there to entertain. You're there to look like an action figure. So to me, that's completely different. Well, okay. I would push back a little bit just to say there are, there are entire websites devoted to dead wrestlers because of the overwhelming prevalence of wrestlers not making it past 40. Okay, there's the harm. But yeah. <laughs> ethically, where's the harm? <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree that there, there are stuntmen working out a scripted thing, trying not to hurt people as opposed to hurting people as the storylines are yeah. suggesting. But yeah, harming themselves for the good of a multi-billion dollar property like the WWE or whatever. I don't know how culpable Vince McMahon is, mm. but, but it seems a little I've, suspect. I, I've got wrestler friends on the indie circuit over here who take testosterone. They're not getting their arm twisted to do it. They want to yeah. look a certain way. You know, they grew up with those physiques like Hulk Hogan and whatnot and, you know, or, or, or He-Man. And right. um, that's the aesthetic thereafter. Um, I, of course, I get it that, you know, there was a period where... WWF was supplying these and there probably was huge pressure but um that's not the case now right I don't know to what extent I mean I I interviewed Chris Bell also on this podcast to mm. talk about his documentary because I, heard that. I thought yeah and I I just I was so intrigued by not a lot of Americans are willing to tackle their patriotism and 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 the toxicity of that American patriotism and the offshoots of it, where he's saying, my heroes growing up, Hulk Hogan, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Arnold Schwarzenegger, they're all cheats. They're all people who lied to get where they are. And not only were they not punished, not only do we not hold them up as cautionary tales, we celebrate them, we venerate them. They've been able to have, as you in your last chapter, talking about retirement reinvention, mm. all three of these people have had enormous reinvention with mm. spectacular second careers kind of thing. And it was funny in discussing it with him, he didn't really want to stand behind that thesis. He, he sort of was pushing back against it to say, I don't think there's anything wrong really with using these drugs in wrestling. Um, like, I don't know. It was, he was like somebody who hadn't made the film he'd made, which mm. had a clear <laughs> message. <laughs> yeah, it's so complicated, isn't it? Well, so I guess... I wanted to get to when you talked about retirement and reinvention with the last chapter and you say professional athletes are a useful lens through which to to complete our own reinventions, Um, that they've embarked on a career trajectory that is stratospheric, but also short term. And so a loss of identity is guaranteed. I think that's interesting because of uh, how powerfully elevated 
sports have become, especially in American culture, but I mean, obviously in Europe too, I mean, around the world, it's one of the great unifying things that we have. And yet, how did it become such a powerful lens? I mean, I know we had the Olympics to stop war, we would compete. But I mean, what was that like for you to delve into that? Because on top of using it as a lens for reinvention, it does seem to me that it also offers a lens for mortality, aging, um, coping with decline, ruin, um, the delusion of athletes who hang on too long. I mean, there's a lot there. It's the whole human experience heightened. Yeah. Like I, I put it crassly, I said sports sports psychology is psychology on steroids. I mean, it's um, uh, the heights are higher, the lows are lower, the risks are higher. Um, and of course, I was writing this book during the pandemic and um, I, I live pretty much in Melbourne, which had the longest lockdown in the world. And um, so it seemed particularly relevant, you know, this idea of having everything snatched away from you, losing your identity, how do we cope with that? You know, people were losing their jobs, people could, or, you know, I, I know loads of people in fields like wrestling, for instance, who couldn't do what they, they're known for anymore and were, you know, watch, <laughs> watching their testosterone cycles dwindle away to pointless nothingness, um, but also had lost that kind of, well, just the thing that they're known for doing. And so looking at having these case studies in my book where they had very abruptly had things taken away from them because like in one case, it was a wrestler who'd been hit repeatedly over the head with a DVD player in the ring, which he'd arranged for, but wound up giving him a brain injury. So he's, you know, for the past four years, he's just been rehabbing and rehabbing and like dealing with this natural agitation and restless energy that he's always has and where do I put this and so he he became he's very eloquent as well so he became a really good lens for which to look at this distress that we were all finding ourselves in and looking at the 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 kind of um solutions that he'd come up with and then it was a ballet dancer as well um Chloe Bayliss who had been on the brink of absolute greatness, had made all these sacrifices, her family had made all these sacrifices. And then um, this debilitating illness came along and basically skived her at the knees. And so she has a, a lot to offer on that as well. Um, and basically, you know, the, the key thing is to make sure your identity is more multifaceted than it probably currently is. So I've noticed, for instance, that a lot of athletes in their social media bios are now often like giving themselves lots of labels mm. so they're not just whatever it is mma fighter they're also ad advocate for this and you know um i don't know whatever their 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 hobbies are that they've they've sort of been encouraged by a specialist a psychologist to pursue they'll all be listed too the idea being, you know, it's just really dangerous to just hook yourself onto your one pursuit and believe that that, that is you. Well, it's interesting. I remember I was writing to a pen pal of mine, a fellow Australian, actually, DVC Pierre. Mm. And I was asking him about, he's an obsessive about Bruce Lee, martial arts and boxing. And I was asking him about how he con compared Muhammad Ali in his time to sort of Mike Tyson and mine growing up and how he saw the two figures that were so closely linked. And he, he had this observation that I, th I think is germane to what you're talking about with athletes, with this monomaniacal focus, is that the desire to become an exceptional person, a great person, is something where we, we all have to, we all begin that way as babies. If I cry, I want whatever I want. But athletes essentially get to maintain that throughout their life. Mm. As much as they talk about their sacrifices that they make, it's really the people around them who have to sacrifice. They have to do exactly what they've always done their entire life. Yeah. If they're that good at it. And the world just bends to them. What a dangerous bubble to be in because you know that's going to burst. And so some people, you know, I talk to, I ask them how they dealt with that kind of knowledge that you've got a shelf life and it's looming and some people said they deliberately don't think about it, you know, to push it out of their minds. Um, 
because yeah, I mean, obviously we always see headlines about these hallowed athletes that have fallen off their pedestal and, you know, maybe into ice or, you know, um, high risk sex or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, they've, they've, it's like they're kind of um, the road runner and they've run out of cliff and they're still like frantically pedaling at that same momentum. Something's got to take its place. Well, and, and, and another thing that I thought it's interesting in, in how your story overlaps with a lot of them, you you ask in the book, what dragon are you? Mine is shame. And that's what my ego is protecting. And yet I keep putting myself in shame's way. And I often think with a lot of, a lot of these guys are like gamblers. Most athletes that I've interviewed are the person going into the casino. They're not the dealer working in the casino. They don't represent the casino, but there are exceptions. And, and all of those exceptions are the people who do walk away on top, of which mm-hmm. there are very few in sports, right? Everybody stays too long because they're compulsive gamblers who are really staying until they lose, not until they win and can like go home and, and have their Dickensian, you know, <laughs> golden uh, idleness. Um, but I wonder what you make of that, that as much as you say you're trying to avoid something, you also recognize that you're drawn to it. And how much do you see that in the athletes that you inventoried in this book, that what compels them is also what they're so afraid of? Uh, wow, that's a little bit abstract. Can you narrow it down for me a bit? Well, I mean, OK, so you like. I guess. I guess in terms of like Shakespeare said, from the passion, trace the wounds. And it seems like you're dealing with all these people are pretty damaged to want to be this obsessive, to become as good as they are. You can't become transcendentally good at any of these things without being Mm. uh, a a pretty fragmented, limited human being, I think. As we're told to be a well-rounded, responsible adult. That is not an athlete, right? Like I don't, I can't really think of many athletes who are well-balanced people who can manage family and day-to-day stuff. They they have to be doing this six, seven hours a day. It has to be their whole lives, doesn't yeah. it? One of my interviewees said something really interesting. Uh, her name's Camilla Fogagnolo, and she's a power lifter and a strongman athlete. And um, she said... Um, she introduced me to this key study, actually, that was done in London in 2016. And it was about super elite athletes versus elite athletes. So super elites were people who were getting gold medals at the Olympic kind of level. And so, um, you know, the researchers were looking for the similar similarities and differences between these two groups. And they found that every single one of the super elite athletes had experienced childhood adversity trauma could be like a horrible divorce um uh could have been neglect could have been someone dying whatever it was and then they also around that time shortly after had some kind of draw towards their chosen sport maybe something good happened in it like they met a good coach or they had a win or something or they just discovered the sport And she said, that makes perfect sense to me because she's always puzzled over the fact that she doesn't view herself as naturally talented, yet she is like top of her game over here. And um, she she realized she had loads of conversations with her coach about it. She realized that she, other other more naturally talented people, if they haven't heard of her kind of upbringing, they're just going to give up because it hurts. Who wants to train which is like a, a form of self-harm in a way for hours and hours a day right. um, when it hurts and it takes more out of you than you're willing to give. So she thinks it ends up being the people who've experienced her kind of childhood who are the ones who persevere despite having not as much natural talent. That's interesting. Yeah, that's very intriguing. No, I often wonder what, I mean, another thing that, that DBC Pierre said is that we like to think that people at this highest level, that it's a dance with their virtue, but it's almost always a dance with their demons. And we don't like to acknowledge that. Yeah. It makes us very uncomfortable to think that these these people are, as you were talking about, scar versus wounds. Um, Mm. I remember Mike Tyson told me, why would somebody who's content strive for anything? 
they're already content. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's funny, isn't it? Because we've got that real trope of the tortured artist, but not of the tortured athlete. No, no I mean, Michael <laughs> Phelps is the only one I can think of who's been really open about how suicidal he is and mm. tormented by what he's done. But I can't think of another one who sort of drops the the curtain or pulls the curtain back to let oh. you see. I think it's happening increasingly. Like, I don't know. So there's a certain breed of reality TV show, and I'm assuming you have them in the States too, where it's things like um, SAS taking athletes to, you know, to experience the the training. Yeah. Um, or general reality TV shows, increasingly you get athletes on there, and they're kind of there to prostrate, the, prostrate themselves because um, they've, done something that you know the public believes they have shamed themselves or they've fallen from grace and they're kind of there to repair whatever it is and so I think increasingly we're getting a, a glimpse into this huge high pressure lifestyle where you could topple off your, your pedestal so easily right. and when you do it tends to be pretty dramatic so yeah I, I think increasingly in, in memoirs too we're seeing that kind of thing. Well, last thing, though, that I think is interesting is because you, you make an interesting comparison. I think there are a lot of artists who really competed like athletes, like Picasso never let go of Goya, that I don't like where I stand next to this guy. So he starts doing Goya paintings when he's in his 80s, and, and Picasso was more productive in his 80s than he was in his 20s. That's how uncomfortable he was with the looming inevitability of death. But I, I think it's interesting that it's hard to sustain an illusion in sports in a way that it's not with with art. You, you, in the sense that we have a Van Gogh where nobody, like the, the most celebrated artist is the one that never sold anything, becomes like the patron saint for would-be artists, right? Whereas in sports, there's not really the mediocre guy who won the Super Bowl or, or the World Cup. Like you have to be exceptional in order to achieve. Yeah. The, there's no equivalent to like American Idol where for me, the sh the schadenfreude is the main selling point of somebody going up there whose family and friends have supported them endlessly about what a wonderful singer they are. The next Whitney Houston and they sing and they're terrible and everybody but them knows it. Yeah. With sports, you get that immediately, right? Like, I mean, the moment you're not able to compete, you're done. Yeah. Unless it's Eddie the Eagle. Um <laughs> It's literally the only thing that pops in my mind. <laughs> but it's kind of funny, though, isn't it? Because you think, like, with you and me, we're trying to send all these manuscripts. I sent hundreds of manuscripts to a publisher. Maybe two of them said something positive. The rest, it was just formal. No, no, thank you for saying no. But if if you're, you can still sustain the either delusion or the hope that I have some place here. <laughs> yes, but I, isn't that great? Would, I would not have that feeling in any sport if I was not able to compete. No, I guess it weeds it weeds out the hopers and dreamers pretty quickly, hey. <laughs> it, it's very judicious, right? In that yeah. in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, last question is what what is next for you after this book? What are you looking to write? I have made a start on a book um about older women and fitness. Because I was thinking about so I'm forty six and I didn't take up sport until I was 43 I, and I up to that point I had a very unhealthy life and then I threw myself into Muay Thai and pole dancing and stuff and and I'm pretty fit now and so of course there's been such a short window of fitness for me I'm terrified of it slamming shut you know menopause looms it, you know the unknown and you know we've, we sort of see menopause as this cultural bogeyman as well like it's oh it's gonna everything's over you might as well give up sort of thing. So I really wanted to talk to outliers again um, about how they charted this sort of next era of their sporting and fitness life. So I, I thought I, I will limit it to women because it's just quite complex, the stuff that women go through. So to right. broaden it out, I think I'd lose some of that potency. So that's what I'm doing now. I've interviewed some really interesting people like um, Lisa Tomati in New Zealand, who's this ultra runner who's absolutely obsessed with epigenetics and um, biohacking and all that kind of thing and um, 
mountain climbers, rock climbers, a 70-year-old pole dancer, um, but, but people who are really killing it and competing right. against people decades and decades younger. So from okay. their extreme examples, you can probably notice a theme with my writing now, what can us mere mortals glean from that? Hmm. Interesting. Aspirational. Yeah, and I, I'm just really into efficiency in writing and like get, getting information to people as efficiently as possible and find as well as finding patterns, just like, here's what you can do. Move ahead with it, you know? Right. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. A cat has come in to make a racket just as we finish. That's Feral Henry. You <laughs> and he, he successfully pried the door open as well. <laughs> all right well thank you so much for today and i know you gotta run but thank you that was great really appreciate it thank you oh great thank job. you all right talk to you soon take care bye 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 thank you for listening to this week's episode of tourist information the producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, 